Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Hi, welcome to Fostering Hope. This is your host for the day, Liz Luce. Nathan is not with us today, so you will get myself and my wonderful other host, uh, Jennifer <laughs> Townsend. to call me co-host. Yes, we are, we are dual hosts. <laughs> Um, for today for Fostering Hope, and we have a really uh, great show today. We are going to be talking with Alan Kahn and Allison DiPrecio, um from the Human Rights Campaign, All Children, All Families. Um, so if you two, Ellen and Allison, would uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your organization and what it is that you do. Well, sure. Well, thanks for having us join your show. We're really excited. Um, this is Ellen Kahn. I'm the director of HRC's Children, Youth, and Families Program. Uh, and um, I'll just briefly say a little bit about uh, the Human Rights Campaign, and then I'll let Allison say a little bit more about All Children, All Families, which is a specific project um, of the Human Rights Campaign. So a lot of people recognize a blue and yellow equal sign. Sometimes it's a sticker on a fender of a car, or uh, it might be in the window of a store, um, or on somebody's T-shirt or hat, and um, it's the logo for the Human Rights Campaign, which is a national civil rights organization uh, focused on achieving equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer uh, people. And um, we are uh, the largest national organization uh, of this type. And um, uh, we've been around uh, closing in on 40 years, um, initially just uh, doing political work, raising money to elect fair-minded people to Congress to try to set the groundwork for um, passing good laws. Uh, and, you know, over time, uh, the organization realized that they also had to not only change the composition of Congress and who gets elected and who's in the White House in order to move our agenda forward, but also changing hearts and minds of everyday people. And so that's part of what we do through programs like All Children, All Families. Yeah, and this is Allison Del Percio. I'm the Deputy Director of the Children, Youth, and Families Program in the Foundation. And um, just to say a little bit about All Children, All Families, it's a project with uh, within the HRC Foundation, the public education arm of the organization, uh, that works with foster care and adoption agencies, um, both uh, private and public, uh, to help them to review their policies and practices and train their staff, all with the goal of improving their LGBTQ competency and making sure that um, all young people, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression um, in the care of these agencies are getting the best services possible and they're not, you know, uh, facing any challenges around their LGBTQ identity and that um, the agencies have the knowledge and skills and best practices in place to really um, successfully recruit, recruit and retain LGBTQ foster and adoptive parents. And that is absolutely something that needs to happen. Um, what is the history behind the organization? How did how did HRC come about, and how did all children, all families, you know, tag on to that? What needs did you see? 
that you wanted to address? Sure. Well, um, you know, HRC, uh, again, it started uh, mainly as an organization, um, as a political action uh, campaign to raise money for candidates, and then it expanded to do uh, more kind of field work out in states to um, to work more directly on campaigns, um, and then we started doing more uh, federal federal lobbying. We have a, a team of folks who are walking the, the halls of, of the nation's capital almost every day, building relationships with elected officials. Um, and we've got, um, you know, we've got a, we do a lot of advocacy, kind of capital A advocacy, very high visibility advocacy. Um, and um, uh, the foundation, the HRC Foundation, which Allison mentioned, is sort of the, you know, the, the, nine, the nonprofit uh, division of the organization. Um, our, our, the work we do is really to, to sort of change the institutions of daily life um, that, are, that LGBTQ people interface with. So that's, you know, schools, our, our workplaces, social service agencies, um, uh, community organizations, um, uh, neighborhoods, uh, and our own homes and own families that we're growing up in. Um, and it includes uh, everything related to parenting and raising children. And so um, just very quickly, the sort of impetus for all children, all families specifically came from uh, the need to, like, you know, this uh, ultra-little family started about 10, 10 years ago, I'd say, mm-hmm. and um, we knew that there were um, many who were sure, but thousands or millions of LGBTQ folks, people like me and Allison talking to you right now, who, who are interested in raising children uh, and fostering and adopting uh, are among the um, the paths that are um, are available to us to build our families, and so we knew that there were you know so many people out there who wanted to be resources for children, whether it was you know adopting uh, infants or adopting sibling groups out of foster care or any any sort of uh, you know potential um, way of building a family. And we also knew there were a lot of agencies, p- private and public. Uh, that were not really on that page yet, where they they didn't really have a very um, welcoming kind of philosophy or policy with regard to LGBTQ folks who were interested in fostering and adopting. Some were overtly discriminatory. Others just kind of subtle with um, being incompetent or not very interested in us as a resource. And so the goal of All Children, All Families initially 10 years ago was focused just on building a bridge between LGBTQ folks who who want to be resource families and are, you know, essentially we're untapped with the, you know, hundreds of agencies that are trying to find families for hundreds of thousands of children. And so that was really the impetus. And it was also the political climate 10 years ago was a bit different than it is now, too. Um, Even though things are a lot better in terms of having, you know, the federal marriage, which, you know, sets sets the foundation for adoption to be a little easier, at least for couples, um, and just social, I guess, you know, public opinion and social attitudes toward LGBTQ folks as parents is much more positive now than it was 10 years ago when we started this. However, um, you know, our, our work isn't done. As you may know, there were several attempts in state legislatures and a couple of successes to kind of close the door uh, to folks who, um, you know, LGBTQ folks and other folks who are interested in fostering and adopting, and, you know, in states like Alabama where they passed a law that allows agencies 
to, you know, on the basis of religious beliefs, to refuse to include us among the resource families. They, they could also refuse to include families of different religions or a single parent or, you know, whatever the case may be. So we still have, you know, a lot of uh, challenges, but, you know, back when we started 10 years ago, um, you know, we were fighting these battles almost every day. There were, you know, people uh, opposing the idea that we could even raise children, that we should raise children, uh, making claims, false claims, that children needed to be raised in only in families with a married mother and father, um, you know, and just, like, perpetuating myths about who we are. Um, and, again, I feel like we've made a lot of progress since then, but all children and all families are the way of just, like, getting right into the child welfare field, uh, talking directly with folks who need, who really needed an opportunity to have conversations, to learn about the community, and to learn how to open their doors in a, in a truly genuine way to LGBTQ folks as resource families. So for you all, when you're doing these, um, the outreach and the going to different agencies, how, how broad is your reach? Um, how many agencies have you conducted these trainings with, these education um, about the LGBTQ families? Yeah, it's a great question. So over the years, we've engaged hundreds of hundreds of agencies across the country. Um, the process that we work uh, through with agencies really provides a roadmap for improving policies and practices. And so the formal participation process looks like um, first doing an assessment of policies and practices um, that we have online and we talk uh, through with agencies. And then that includes um, staff training as one of those best practices. So many agencies work with us in our national training program to train their staff and, um, you know, get other policies in place like non-discrimination policies and reviewing forms and making sure that other forms and paperwork are inclusive and, you know, scanning their environment and seeing what are the visual cues, the welcoming images um, in the agency that really shows LGBTQ folks that they're welcomed and encouraged to um, foster, adopt, or shows that young person that this is an agency committed to um, making sure that they're getting uh, the best services available. Um, and so we work through those policies and practices, and once an agency um, gets all of those in place, they'll get a seal of recognition um, from the Human Rights Campaign Foundation. And so we have um, over 60 agencies across the country at this point who've gotten that seal of recognition, and um, more broadly, um, hundreds that have participated and um, kind of worked through our assessments to look at their policies and practices. And I would just add... One of the benefits of the work that we do as a large organization nationally um, is that we do have uh, really strong brand recognition among LGBTQ folks and a lot of um, and so we have a bit, an ability to easily communicate with a lot of LGBTQ people. So a big part of our work is also raising awareness among LGBTQ community members around opportunities to foster and adopt. And then we can also point folks to the agencies that are working with us and kind of give them a little bit of peace of mind that these are agencies that have done some of the work in terms of rolling out their welcome mat to LGBTQ folks. And we definitely at Foster.Connect hope that we have enough signs up for, for them to feel welcome. We are going to have to um, end uh, this segment and we will be back um, to talk a little bit more about the statistics and, and number of LGBT youth in care uh, when we come back on Fostering Hope.
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. We are here talking with Ellen and Allison of the Human Rights Campaign. Um, you guys, in the last segment, we were talking about the Human Rights Campaign and a little bit about All Children on Family, kind of um, its growth, where it started. But I was wondering if you guys could speak a little bit to what brought you to this work. You've done so much over the years. Um, I know as a queer foster parent myself, I really thank HRC for allowing me to have the family, you know, helping to allow me to have the family that I always dreamt of. So um, personally, what brought you to this work? Well, this is Ellen. Um, I, um, I'm i in my 50s. And uh, when I was in my 20s, um, I live in Philadelphia. Um, I was I was out. I was pretty young when I came out. It was a very hard time to be out uh, as a teenager. And um, I had a very small group of uh, LGBTQ friends. Uh, most of the guys were, you know, in the drama club and most of the... Uh, <laughs> Girls were on the softball team just to be funny and stereotypical, but it was true back then. And, uh, you know, we didn't have the kind of um, organizations and community that we have now, so there weren't a lot of places to go and not a lot of things to do, but we had each other's back, and uh, it was, I guess, in about 1982 or three, something like that. Um, is that right? In the early, mid-'80s, rather, uh, the first uh, person in my social network uh, got diagnosed with AIDS, and that was when you, you got diagnosed with AIDS, not HIV, because you got diagnosed, you're already quite sick, and, um, and so that really um, uh, mobilized me and most of the friends I was connected to, to, uh, to, act, like, to action, you know, getting involved in creating um, systems of care, like uh, these informal systems of care, and volunteering, and also getting politically active, um, and that that sort of helped me figure out that I wanted to uh, be a social worker, and I ultimately got my master's degree in social work and did a lot of work in uh, HIV for a while, in LGBTQ health more broadly, and then started doing work supporting uh, LGBTQ parents, um, forming families, living as openly LGBTQ-headed families. And, um, and then here at HRC, just kind of having the opportunity to think about um, you know, where some of the gaps are um, in, in, uh, in, in these systems and All Children of Families was one of the programs we got to launch that was, uh, you know, filling, filling a gap for uh, child welfare. Yeah, and this is Alfin. I think um, similarly and like so many of us who do, you know, LGBTQ advocacy and public education work, you know, I came to this work also from a very personal place. Um, I think it's, it's personal and important for all of us, whether we're LGBTQ identified or not, but I am, I do identify as gay. And, but really, I first got interested and kind of my own awareness was raised around the challenges that LGBTQ uh, folks face when some family members of mine came out to me when I was a teenager. And um, so before I really had an awareness of my own sexual orientation, um, you know, my, I kind of stepped into this role of an ally and just seeing difficulties my sister was having navigating coming out to friends. And, um, and my father actually came out when I was a teenager after, you know, um, 17 years of marriage with my, my mother. And um, so kind of seeing his experiences of, um, his journey in terms of ex, uh, accepting his sexual orientation and, and kind of navigating with his family, my grandparents. And um, so my parents are, you know, very good friends uh, to this day. And in terms of, you know, that kind of family trajectory, I, it has turned out very well. And, 
and it was an experience that really showed me what it can what it can be like to have a family moving from uh, really being challenged to be affirming and accepting to really shifting to a very accepting and celebratory um, nature towards the LGBTQ family members and. So, you know, in my 20s, realized I was I was gay, and around that same time, was doing some campus activism in Rochester, New York, and through that activism, uh, discovered uh, what it could be like to be an LGBTQ professional doing advocacy, and um, made my way to HRC after graduating from undergrad. So, your personal experience with your family seems pretty positive and affirming. Would you say that that's correct? Yes, definitely. I mean, I had the experience of, you know, a mother who, my mom's very accepting of, you know, both her daughters who are gay, and she, you know, proudly displays her equality sign from HRC at her workplace cubicle and is, you know, eager to talk to all of her coworkers about both of her lesbian daughters and her gay ex-husband. Um, so, yes, uh, very affirming family on my end, and um, I feel very fortunate and grateful for that. I know that a lot of the youth that we work with um, here in the Midwest and I'm sure in other parts of the country as well do not get that same response from their family members. And it, it leads to some pretty negative um, experiences for them. What does um, the HRC and All Children All Families focus on with those youth? Absolutely. So family acceptance um, and family response really to young people coming out as LGBTQ is, is so important. Um, we know that LGBTQ young people are overrepresented in foster care. Um, one study in Los Angeles found that one out of every five young people in L.A. County who are in care are LGBTQ identified. Um, and so definitely overrepresent, overrepresented, and a lot of those young people have experienced family rejection around their sexual orientation or gender identity. And, you know, in the last segment, Ellen talked about um, all children, all families history and how it really originated in trying to bridge that gap between LGBTQ folks interested in foster care and adoption and the agencies um, who maybe weren't yet engaging the community. Yet, but over time we expanded to include much more resources around um, training and best practices and working with LGBTQ youth to make sure that they're not facing difficulties because of um, staff members' unconscious or conscious bias um, or policies and practices that are um, maybe unintentionally uh, making their experiences uh, even more traumatic than they kind of already are. So I know that here in Kansas City recently um, I heard that uh, 50% of our Kansas City area homeless youth identify as LGBTQ. Is, I mean, that seems like an insane amount of youth that are, are in care basically because they are being rejected or not affirmed by their families. Um, yeah, I mean, it really is um, true, and you see that across the country. Um, and, it, and it speaks to the point Ellen made around how there's been so much progress, um, undeniable progress, but there's still so much room to be uh, work to be done in terms of um, educating uh, parents and the general public so that when folks do have a young person in their lives come out to them, they have the knowledge um, and, uh, and what they need to be affirming, right? And a lot of it does come down to um, the work of undoing some uh, bias and helping folks recognize the misconceptions or myths that they may have um, due to their socialization and the way that we've all really been taught that there's certain ways to be and certain ways not to be. And a lot of this comes down to, you know, LGBTQ folks navigating a world that is kind of built around 
a gender binary that um, is, is really not accurate, and we're doing the work of creating room for folks who don't meet those strict societal uh, expectations and helping families uh, do that work as well. I think one of the wonderful things about my, uh, I'd say co-host, but she's not a co-host, just the host, <laughs> Jennifer, is that she does that, um, you know, the HRC, the training mm-hmm. uh, with the youth and the families. And um, we don't see that in as many agencies as we'd like to here in Missouri So and Kansas. Um, we are very hopeful that that will continue to spread and that we'll get to see you more down here. We are going to have to end this segment momentarily. But when we do come back, we'd like to talk to you a little bit about um, how we can better recruit LGBT parents um, and families for our youth, and not just for our our LGBT youth, but for our straight youth as well. Um, They make great parents either way. (laughs) So when we come back to Fostering Hope, we'll discuss that further. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am Liz Luce with my other host, Jennifer Townsend. We are here today with Ellen Kahn and Allison Del Precio from HRC, the Human Rights Campaign in Washington, D.C., and we're speaking with them a little bit about um, recruiting LGBT foster and adoptive parents and working with our LGBTQ youth. So uh, we actually, um, Jennifer and I, both worked the Pride Fest, Kansas City Pride Fest, this past weekend, and a lot of what we get is folks coming by and, you know, they ask about the booth and they, they are shocked to learn that they are actually able to be foster and adoptive parents. Is that something that you find in your work um, when you're recruiting parents or is that, uh, how do you handle when people are like, oh, I didn't even know we could do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, uh, and happy pride. It is June and it's pride <laughs> month. And uh, uh, the it's a great um, recruitment strategy to show up at your uh, local pride festival or pride event if you're an agency that's interested in trying to build build relationships with the LGBT community because when you are when uh, we see you coming to our events and showing up kind of at our uh, in our spaces where we feel comfortable it, it means a lot it says you really want to um, support us and show up so uh, that was, it's great that you're doing that. I know you guys have been doing that for quite a while. Um, yes, it is actually shocking, and it's not just in um, Midwestern states or more conservative states. It's uh, I have colleagues in California who go to Los Angeles Pride, and they have the same conversations with people there. It's one of the states that had has the had, had laws for for many years, um, non discrimination around sexual orientation, gender identity, and so. I think it's, you know, not only do we need to do work with uh, professionals and agencies like we do with all children, all families, and really helping agencies create a truly welcoming environment and really, you know, uh, in in all areas of of the agency, but we also need to continue educating our own community about the opportunities to foster and adopt, uh, to keep highlighting stories about families, um, LGBTQ people, single people, partner people who have um, fostered or adopted through foster care and um, until more folks in our community see themselves in that. So I'm not too surprised. It means that there's a lot more work to do. And I think that um, it's, 
it's uh, it's a good reminder that um, for agencies that want to expand their pool of families and include LGBTQ people in that pool, um, whatever if if you've not really uh, been successful, it's because you haven't tried some of the sort of best practices, if you will, in recruiting from a specific community. And uh, if you know if you're an agency that maybe uh, at some point needed to recruit more uh, families that um, were of a sort of, you know, either Latinx or Hispanic background or uh, to try to create more opportunities uh, to place children who are from the same background, for example, you obviously needed to make some changes to your organization. You needed bilingual people, bicultural people. You needed to show up in communities where you're more likely to be seeing these folks in their day-to-day lives. Um, and so similarly, you know, we recommend uh, strategies, very kind of intentional strategies for um, connecting with the LGBT community. And again, showing up at the, at the Pride event is, is one piece of that. It's not everything, but it's a piece of it. So what um, specific, I, I guess, specific work do you do, not in the grand scheme, but, but more specific to recruit those families? So we're there, we're at Pride, or we're going to these specific places. Um, what's, I, I don't know how to say this, but what's the selling point? I feel like there are so many great things about our LGBTQ families and, and the knowledge that they have. What do you see that LGBTQ families can bring to the table to help some of these kids? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll say a few more things about that. Um, so, you know, Allison and I both shared a little bit about our, um, our own background. And um, for, for many LGBTQ folks, um, we have struggled for, um, to be accepted by our families. Um, and uh, that could be parents, grandparents, siblings. Um, we've all, often had challenging times uh, in school and in our in, in, among our peers um, in terms of being accepted. Um, often we were, we felt like outsiders or were made to feel outside. We've often endured, um, you know, very overt discrimination, um, bias, um, sometimes uh, physical harm, um, and, uh, and often had to kind of create uh, families by, uh, by choice versus family by DNA. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned I did a lot of work in the early days of, of the AIDS epidemic when it was primarily affecting uh, gay and bisexual men, and it, we were essentially, you know, strangers who would show up for sick people because they had been, uh, you know, rejected by and abandoned by their families, and, you know, we would show up and, you know, help them bathe and cook and eat and get to medical appointments, and I mean, it's, it's that kind of um, showing up and, uh, and um, that, that I think those experiences make us quite resilient. Um, I think we can have a real sense of what young people experience in terms of not feeling um, wanted or valued by their families, um, having to recreate a sense of family, um, you know, dealing with a sense of differentness. And even though it might not be about their sexual orientation or gender identity, um, you know, we, we understand um, that you've got to kind of keep getting back up and finding your way and, uh, and, and, and finding new ways to feel like you're part of a family. What it sounds like to me is that you're, you've got the resilient part down and the unconditional part down. Um, 
the the feeling that we're with you yeah 100% no matter what what um cuz i know that there have been some recent studies done what do the studies say about our lgbtq um people who have become foster adoptive families yeah i mean i think it's in our trainings with social workers and others working in foster care adoption we um we always start by uh, making the point that there's, you know, over three decades worth of social science research out there now showing that um, children and youth raised in LGBTQ-headed families are faring just as well as those raised in non-LGBTQ families. And so um, there's just a lot of data out there and research that can go a long way in educating and kind of um, undoing some of that bias or helping to... um, help people understand that it's some misconceptions and myths that uh, around the LGBTQ community that may be behind their hesitation to work with LGBTQ folks who may want to foster adopt. Um, and so, yes, there's, uh, you know, all of the major professional organizations out there who have their, you know, day-to-day mission of ensuring that families in this country are strong and children are safe. All of those professional associations have released statements in support of LGBTQ parenting. Um, and so, you know, it, there's really no question that the best practice in the field um, and the consensus in the field is that LGBTQ folks um, can and should be parenting and make great parents. And even some of the most recent studies show that kids with LGBTQ parents are faring better in some outcomes when compared to um, their peers who have uh, straight and cisgender parents. And that is due to, um, if I'm, if we've read the same studies, probably, um, isn't that in large part due to the fact that many um, LGBTQ homes fared better in their um, sort of equality in the home regarding, um, you know, steering away from traditional gender roles or like a more egalitarian um, setup in the home? Is that is that what you're referring to? Yeah, there are okay. um, several studies have found that 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 factor is is positive is a positive outcome that you know there are young people growing up in families where you know there's more of a division of household uh, chores, household uh, responsibilities, that kind of thing. No, no sort of strictly enforced gender roles like the quote you know the father does X, the mother mm-hmm. does X, you know that, those sorts of things. And some of the studies have shown too that there's um, uh, that around like what, what's sometimes called social emotional learning, or uh, what we might say in 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 more plain terms, um, uh, children having uh, a real appreciation for kind of diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. and um, a kind of open, open more open minded in general. Um, that they see some higher rates of children with those kinds of open attitudes uh, when they've been raised by LGBTQ parents. I always tell people to, um, I, I have three little ones. My wife and I have three little ones at home, and uh, this was about as far from a accident as you could get. This is a lot of work to get to the, the point of being parents. So, um, you know, very conscientious, took years to get to this point, and so I think that, you know, can sometimes be a factor in our parenting. Whereas yeah. my straight relationship was... <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm, there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into my nine-year-old. So I can see exactly what you mean. I didn't have to work hard at it. So. Happy miracle. 
She is. Do you, um, we are uh, just a, a minute away from taking a break, but I just have one more question for you. What do you think the largest barrier that you see overall is for being able to license the LGBT parents? Well, I think the barrier, is, I think it's really on the uh, side of, of uh, agencies and professionals. Not. I think there are, you know, one study shows 2 million LGB folks um, expressed an interest in adoption. So if there's no shortage of us uh, interested in, in fostering or adopting, I think the barriers tend to remain where there's uh, bias, sometimes not fully conscious bias, on the part of, the folks who are doing the recruiting, who are doing the home studies, who are making placement decisions, that they just, there's some discomfort still with placing children with LGBT parents, um, and th- that's often where things kind of break down or stall out or get murky. Um, and that's largely why we focus so much on uh, improving practice and building competency. And Ellen, we're going we're gonna to have to end this segment, but when we come back, I do want to talk to you more about that and what we can do to help in the community when we get back on Fostering Hope. We are back for our fourth and final segment on Fostering Hope. We are uh, speaking with Ellen and Allison of Human Rights Campaign. And when we left off, we were talking about some of the barriers for our LGB families. I wanted to dive in a little bit and see if you guys could tell me what barriers might be specific to our transgender community in the fostering and adoptive um, pursuit. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, in the earlier segment, if you were listening carefully, you may have heard Ellen talked about the studies showing that an estimated 2 million LGB folks um, in the U.S. are interested in um, adoption. And, you know, is it intentional not mentioning the T or the Q there because the study didn't look at uh, gender identity or expression? And so that points to one challenge just in the field in general around um, there being less data, less research around the trans community um, when compared to, um, you know, lesbian and gay in particular parenting. But it is important to note that um, the research out there and um, meta studies pulled together by organizations like the Williams Institute does show that um, just like sexual orientation, the gender identity or expression of a parent has no negative impact on um, the development of young of young people. So, you know, there's social science research showing that there is absolutely no harm <laughs> to young people for having um, LGBTQ parents and including, you know, the very diverse fabric of, of the community in that social science research. Um, in terms of barriers that trans families face, um, you know, we're actually working on a new resource um, here at All Children, All Families that will be released later this year uh, for folks specifically on competent practice with uh, trans and non-binary foster adopt parents. Um, and so as part of that work, we're doing interviews right now actually with trans-identified and non-binary folks who have foster and adopt. And a lot of what we're hearing is, is really similar to what Ellen was speaking to in terms of bias and, you know, just um, ignorance in terms of uh, workers' knowledge around the uh, trans experience and how to competently um, work with folks who have diverse gender identities and expressions. Um, And so a lot of the work that we do is really around educating staff and then also helping them understand where 
policies and practices may, you know, unintentionally be exclusive and mm-hmm. um, and not allowing uh, trans folks to show up and, and be authentic uh, throughout the process. And I have a quick question. Maybe it's because I, I just don't get it because my parents are who they are and there was never any difference between anybody. Um, what are the the things that they are worried, I guess, what are they worried about with, with trans families? Well, you know, I think, um, right, I, I think it's, who know, there's a lot of just fear around difference, I would say. And that's what and I, then, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Maybe it's just the unknown, because I can't yeah, think of I anything think it's, else. It's, it's really, when it comes down to it, um, all of us, really, were socialized to understand the world in terms of a very strict binary when it comes to gender, and that there's, you know, two different ways to be. You're a boy, um, and you're assigned male at birth, and you identify as a man, or, you know, when you were born, the doctor says it's a girl, and you identify as a woman. And all of the ways that those kind of assignments at birth dictate your future, right, and what um, what professions you can, you can have or what um, clothes you could wear, right? And so we see how the binary and expectations around the binary are just pervasive. And if we're all taught that um, and we're not really given much opportunities to learn um, otherwise, then uh, that just leads to a lot of bias and um, a need for additional education for folks to, um, you know, work competently f- with folks who uh, have diverse genders and uh, sexual orientations. Mm-hmm. This is Ellen. I would just add uh, briefly to that, that um, generally speaking, and this plays out in our trainings as well, um, people understand sexual orientation. It's just generally an easier concept. And most people know someone who's gay or lesbian or bisexual and just understanding, oh, okay, sexual orientation, it's mostly about, like, who you're attracted to and who you're partnered with. And, uh, but when we talk about gender identity and what it means to be transgender or non-binary, it's just for many people, I guess the average person, this is newer to them. Um, you know, maybe Caitlyn Jenner uh, coming out so publicly was the first time they really said, oh, okay, now I think I get it. Or you know, watching Jazz Jennings' show on TLC or uh, learning about Laverne Cox, um, who's in Orange is the New Black. And, and, but it's still, I think, a pretty new concept. Um, and if a social worker doesn't have the language and understanding about gender identity, um, I mean, that person is unlikely, uh, it's unlikely that person is going to be able to have uh, you know, to have a conversation with a trans person who's expressed an interest in a foster care license or, um, or, or to know how to find a family that's going to be affirming for uh, a trans or non-binary young person who, who's in care. So um, I think that there's just a lot of education still left to do. And I am actually feeling very hopeful this week about that education. My sister is a junior in, in college here in Kansas City, and I heard her talking the other day about a group of her friends, and she was describing them, and she said, oh, my cisgender friend, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, okay, that was just used in, like, regular conversation. She's, yeah, yeah. it's just so great that the education, I don't, I feel like with her, she, she knows what it all means. She's, she's wanting to say it's not uh, one of her friends, it's the one that's cisgendered, so mm-hmm. I will know who it is. <laughs> I'm glad that she knows the word because I just learned that right. this past right. year, and I think it's so great that our young people are 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 learning it so much earlier than we did. So Absolutely. a, a lot of our, generational. 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of our conversation has been about um, professionals in this field and how we can support the LGBTQ community. Before we run out of time, can you guys speak a little bit to um, a majority of our listeners, which are just members of the general population? What can they do to better support and advocate for LGBTQ youth and families? Well, this is Allison. I'll start. Um, I think, I mean, it's what I end all my trainings with and the recognition of the fact that like learning is an ongoing process. And so I would just encourage listeners that, you know, if you learn something new today that you thought was interesting, maybe share that with someone in your life that you think, you know, may also find it interesting. And if anything we said today was confusing or something you want to learn more about, just encourage you to seek out resources and keep learning about, you know, diverse sexual orientations and gender identities and the LGBTQ community and the experiences we have while we move through the world and how, um, you know, really everyone can play their part in um, creating a world where LGBTQ folks are, are welcomed and a and yeah, I would say if you have young people in your life, if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a coach or a, you know someone who works with young people, um, don't assume that you know the sexual orientation or gender identity of the young people in your life. And when you talk to them uh, or ask them questions, instead of maybe asking a, a young woman if she has a boyfriend, um, ask if there's someone special in her life or, um, you know, if, uh, you know, you... You have you have kids. Um, when you if you don't necessarily like talk about oh when you get married someday or someday your husband will say this or that, just say um, things like no matter who you love, you know we'll support you or you know no matter what your life holds for you, um, I hope that you find someone that that you love and loves you back and not to gender everything and not to assume uh, that everyone's going to be straight or cisgender. Thank you so much for joining us today on Fostering Hope. Um, I am so glad that we got to have you on the show. Uh, you have been listening to Fostering Hope, brought to you by Foster.Connect, a comprehensive regional support and advocacy center for abused and neglected children and the families caring for them. To learn more about how to become a foster parent and how you can help vulnerable children in other ways, you can visit us at fosteradopt.org or follow Foster.Connect on Facebook and Twitter, or email Liz at Foster.org. Thank you for listening, and we hope to hear from you next week.